This morning, we'll be jumping back, as you had read for you, Luke chapter 3, where we remember two weeks ago, Pastor Dan had covered the first portions of chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. This morning, as was read, we'll do 15 through 20. And what the section that we have this morning before us, in continuity with the section that Pastor Dan preached a couple of weeks ago, is simply this. John continues this morning, as we'll see to make a clear distinction between himself and the coming Christ. This, again, is his mission in the earth and the mark of his ministry. He understands himself of what I want to focus on this morning as John perceives himself quite clearly and makes that well known to the crowds that gather that he himself is a minister of the covenant. This is going to be important. I'll come back and define a few terms before we get started. But if you could just kind of track with me in the outset. John continues to make the distinction between himself and the coming Christ. How so or in what manner? John understands himself to be a minister, is the key term there, a minister of the covenant. Whereas the coming Christ one that you heard that he is not worthy to even untie or carry his sandal. He is not a minister of the covenant, but he, the coming Christ, is the Lord of the covenant. This is the distinction as John sees his own ministry. Again, I am a minister of the covenant, but he who comes after me, he who is mightier than I, is the Lord of the covenant. If I could clarify a few terms as we get started. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down. If you go back over this text, it'll help you fill in some pieces as we move forward. Um, I want to give you these three terms and then it'll kind of fill out as we go through the text this morning. The first one is the term minister. Perhaps you are familiar with what that term means and you're well acquainted, therefore it's not that mysterious. But if I could provide a brief definition to what we mean as we look and peer into the ministry of John the Baptist. As we have said, he understands himself as a minister. What do we mean by minister? That is simply, even as myself included, as called of the Lord here, a redeemer. Is that a minister is one who administers or one who serves on behalf of another. This is important for our understanding of John's understanding of his own ministry. He is one who administers or serves on the behalf of another. This we will see in his portrait. The next piece is covenant. So when I say that he is a minister of the covenant, the next definition I would like to provide, what do we mean when I say he is a minister of the covenant? But by definition, I would suggest this. The covenant is the content of his service. That is, he is one who administers on the behalf of another. What is it that he's administering? He is administering the covenant. That is, what is the covenant? The covenant is the content of his service, namely, the Word of God that sets the boundaries and defines the relationship between God and his people. This is what we mean by a minister of the covenant, one who serves on the behalf of another. And the content of his service or the terms of his service are not self-authorized, but rather what he serves and administrates is the Word of God, not himself. 
The Word of God regulates and sets the boundaries, defines the relationship between God and humanity, those who identify as His people and those who don't. The boundary markers are the same for relationship to God. It is His Word and His Word alone. Third definition I want to provide you with as we look into the portrait of John as a faithful minister of the covenant, and that is a term, sign. Not as in, this is your sign. I don't know, that was a joke, if you know. Either way. Moving on. Sign. To help you understand is this content of a minister who serves on the behalf of another or administers the terms and the contents of the covenant. Every covenant relationship carries with it a sign or seal that is in relation to the covenant content. In other words, what I mean is if we could define sign biblically, it would be this. A sign is a visible act that points beyond itself to an invisible reality. I'll give you an example of this as we move forward in the ministry of John. Hopefully, it will make that a bit more clear as we are tracking the portrait of John as a faithful minister of the covenant. What is sign? It belongs to covenant. And a sign is simply this, a visible act that points beyond itself to an invisible reality reality. So this morning, I want to mine this out a bit, follow and track through the text, if you have it open with you this morning, laying there, if we can look at it together, I want to track through the text, the portrait of John as a faithful minister of the covenant, one who serves on the behalf of another, not his own words and defining statements, but the word of God, and also issues forth in that word, the sign That follows the word of that covenant. And then the distinction of John as minister to Jesus, who alone is Lord of that covenant. The first portion of John as a faithful minister of the covenant, what marks today's ministers, what marks John as a minister in his day as being faithful to the ministry of the covenant? In other words, what has he entrusted with whereby we can mark, is he faithful What are ministers today, this minister before you, what is he tasked to do whereby he might be judged or weighed as either faithful or unfaithful to that very task of which he is called to execute? And the first one of what we see in the portrait of John is ministry of faithfulness to the word of the covenant. John is a faithful minister of the word of of that covenant. How so? If you look at Luke chapter 3, just by brief remembrance, because 3 in the earlier portion of 3 will feed into our time this morning of 15 through 20. As Pastor Dan said again, this mark of his faithfulness to the proclamation of the word of the covenant. Look at John's ministry in chapter 3 and follow in verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming or, or preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the proclamation of the word. Here's John in his ministry, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, the content of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Further down through the text, you see yet again his faithfulness to the word of the covenant. Verse 8, 
He continues to the crowds that are gathering to faithfully proclaim the word of the covenant. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, this is the content of the covenant. He is calling them to repentance. He is calling them to the life of repentance where they manifest, indeed, that their faith is following the word of the Lord. Verse 8, again, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And he warns them in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. This warning to Israel of identifying simply as a God's people ethnically, physically, theocratically. We belong to God simply because we're physically born as his people. John here faithfully proclaims the word of the covenant. That is not the case. Then as you see in verse 10, he then goes on to speak to the crowds. He then gives application to them. He then makes clear the word in terms of the covenant to the tax collectors. And then in verse 14, also unto the soldiers. So here as you see, John's ministry is marked as a minister, not of himself in his own terms of arrangement, but he is here being a faithful teacher and minister of the word of the covenant. That is, he essentially stands preaching the content of the covenant, fully expounding its twofold aspects. Number one, its blessings that attend to obedience. That is why he says, keep in with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He proclaims a baptism for forgiveness. You see verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, so with many other exhortations, he preached not just sanctions to the rebellion, but good news to those who gather. This is the mark of a faithful minister. One who will stand and preach both words of Holy Scripture. He will preach forth on Lord's Day and to all the people that gather the warnings of the law. That disobedience begets sanction and discipline. When we gather on Lord's Day and we hear this word from the Lord, if it goes in one ear and out the other and we proceed as we have gathered, then we will face fatherly discipline and sanctions in our relationship. A chastising, a difficult edge, whereby we might be called yet again unto repentance and renewal. Obedience continues to experience that great blessedness of union and communion with our Lord. A sense of growth, a sense of kindness in His mercy that gathers and attends to us each and every day. The blessing of the Lord attends to those who hear and heed his word. This is the mark of a faithful minister who will proclaim not simply his own words, but the words of the covenant. Now, I want to flesh out this portrait of John just a little bit further in three ways that is displayed through the text. As we see, again, John is what? A faithful minister of the word of the covenant. I want to say upset right up front, I'm going to give you three ways in which we fill out the portrait of John as a faithful minister. But to each of us gathered here, let me say this. These are, as we're studying them here in Luke 3, particular to John because we're looking at them as evidenced in John's life. 
He's the center of this text that we're considering this morning. However, the word particular to John does not mean that they are altogether or meant to be altogether unique to John. That is, if I could press a little bit further, the three ways in which we find John to be portrayed to us as a faithful minister of the word of the covenant are marks that can also and are to also attend to every individual believer. So are they particular to John? Sure, because we're studying John. Are they altogether unique to John? As in, well, that's what John was all about. The answer to that is no. As we see the defining marks of John's ministry, we will see that they are deeply applicable to each and every one who would call themselves a believer. And then from believer, how much more so of our ministers who stand in continuity with John as preaching the word of the covenant in both its blessing and its warning. So as I give you the first one of three to fill out the portrait of John as a faithful minister of the covenant, he who stands and speaks forth its blessings yet warns the crowds by its sanctions and disobedience. Number one, John is a faithful minister, preached the word of the covenant at great risk. To himself. Now, at this point, I give you risk because John does not know, indeed, he does not know what is about to take place in his ministry. So, at this point, without foreknowing what is to become of him physically or what is to become of his ministry, he, at this point, without calculating what this may cost him, he simply proceeds faithfully. He is a minister who preaches the word of the covenant at great risk to himself. How have we already seen this in the text? And yet again here in a moment, we'll see how it concludes. But how can we say that John preaches the word of the covenant at great risk to himself? Well, again, we saw last week with Pastor Dan, or two weeks ago now, that John is speaking out in the earlier portions of chapter 3 against widespread corruption in every sector that he brushes elbows with or shoulders with in the sector of society. That is, he is speaking out against corruption in powerful places. John knows this is risky business, and yet he proceeds faithfully to disclose the word of the covenant to people in powerful positions. Look once again in the early portions of chapter 3, verse 10, as he says generally to the crowds, And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Look how he continues to speak to authority in places of power. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Again, to great risk to himself. Verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Again, here, at great risk to himself, he speaks against extortion, or what was popular in the day of tax collection, to skim off the top. Line your own pockets or soldiers as they coerced people into making statements, brutal tactics, and abuse unless they were paid. 
John speaks out against widespread corruption in each and every rank of society that he rubbed shoulders with, and he did so in order that he be found faithful to the word of the covenant, though he was at great risk to himself as a minister of the covenant. Secondly, through the text, we see that John is not only a faithful minister who preached the content of the covenant at great risk, but as a faithful minister of the word of the covenant, John promoted Christ rather than himself. This is a standard mark of a minister, that a minister would point each and every Lord's day away from himself and unto Christ, who is the Lord of the covenant. You see, in certain precincts, John's preaching against the powerful was greatly welcomed. As you can imagine, an oppressed people hearing the words of John who takes down structures of authority and with great rebuke. In those places, John was a man of the people. Many came unto him, and he reached quite a notoriety. Look in verse 15. You see where this populist message or this populist preaching reached quite a high intensity. For John and his notoriety, verse 15, as the people were in expectation. So they've heard him strip down the Pharisees, those who come out. He strips down the national identity of Israel, being physically the people of God is enough. He strips that down. He moves on to the tax collector, to the soldier. He speaks a populist message. And by hearing that, many were in great expectation for John and his ministry. He is what we'd consider a very popular preacher. And all were questioning. Look at the rest of verse 15. They were all questioning in their hearts concerning John. Again, it was a message that was resonating with many. So much so that their hearts were full of expectation about John himself. They wondered whether he might be the Christ himself. John may be the Lord's deliverer. Maybe it is that, God, that John is the Messiah. With John, certainly as we see, maybe you track online or you read in Christian magazines or you just hear through the grapevine, many a minister falling in ministry due to, I guess we could say, unfortunate success. Many who receive such a notoriety that it intoxicates. And then that mark of successful ministry isolates one from others and gives a false sense of power to the minister. It isn't far from there that their feet begin to fall. Because at some point they did cross the wires. That maybe they themselves, though they might not confess it, as all of us do struggle with it in all of our professions, maybe they are themselves the Lord's anointed. Struggling with that power and the perception of power with others, the relationships. Yet as we here have a mark for each of us in our points of industry or as ministers who have that temptation to become the Lord's anointed in the place of the people of God, John gives us a faithful example of a minister and of a believer together that as faithful ministers or faithful Christians unto Christ, John pointed everyone away from himself and unto 
Christ. Look at verse 16 as we see the faithfulness of John as he points away from self and unto Christ. He knows the expectation of the people and whether he might be the Lord's anointed. Verse 16, John answered them all. So whether it was spoken or unspoken, exactly how John is perceiving or what they're wondering about him, John answered them all, not saying, yeah, I kind of am pretty good at what I do. You can tell that I've worked hard at this. You see, I am really effective in my calls for repentance, right? So he sees the expectation, the people looking to him. And in a moment of receiving and resting and treasuring that, he doesn't. He takes it and he turns it away. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. He then makes this remark about the he who is mightier. He says, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, it is a statement here of untying the sandals. It's simply another expression that we would say something along the lines, I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. John is a faithful minister who doesn't relish the moment of popularity, but uses it faithfully to point all who are expectant Unto he who can deliver. That is the Lord alone. John knows he is not the Lord of the covenant. He is a minister. He serves and administrates. Not his own call and his own message and his own popularity, but the message and call and content of another. Thirdly, as we see the third piece, again, the portrait of John, yes, in a sense that it is particular to him as we look at him, but it is not unique to him that individual believers are not called to risk anything. Or we might look at this and say, well, we're not all called to point others unto Christ. We're allowed to relish the moments. No, it is particular to John, but not unique to him. That each and every one of us would consider the risk that God calls us unto that each of us would consider how our lives are pointing others to him and away from ourselves. And thirdly, as a faithful ministry of the word of the covenant, John was willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. Look at verses 18 through 20 as John is faithful as a minister even to suffer for the cause of Christ. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, again, calling and exhorting, calling forth repentance, telling the, both the, the law and the gospel. He preached the gospel, good news to the people. But verse 19, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him. You see, he, he, he again spoke to places of authority and corruption at great risk to himself, and it didn't stop with a few soldiers. It went all the way to Herod's door. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, and you get what's taking place there. The, the, the Herod is marrying his brother's wife. And that's not just this adultery and fornication that John took on in his message of the covenant. But it didn't stop there. It looks like John stripped him all the way to the ground. It says, and for all the evil things. That Herod had done. John was what we'd consider as a preacher. He was a thorn in his side. This is his message of being faithful to the terms of the covenant. 
So he addressed all the evil things that Herod had done. Verse 20, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now again, John's ministry is kind of at this point in Luke's gospel ending. John passes off the scene as a faithful minister of the covenant at great risk to himself, pointing others away from himself and unto the Lord of the covenant and willing to suffer even in order to achieve faithfulness in the ministry of the covenant. He not only goes to prison, but if you would switch over to chapter 9 quickly, it doesn't simply end in jail for John. As you know, probably the story at some point to see John's willingness to risk, and now John's risk comes home to roost. Chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. Luke tells the final issue of the story of John the Baptist here. As a faithful minister, this is what happened to John, who was faithful. Verse 7 of chapter 9, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. This is the ministry of Christ. And he was perplexed. I don't really get it. How is all of this taking place? Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. So indeed, Herod is perplexed. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. This is the end of John's faithfulness. He was imprisoned by Herod for the reproving of him in a very public manner and calling forth the people to repentance and faithfulness, not to his own words or that which soothed the crowd, but that which was faithful to the word of God, which was his mission to do. Eventually, that ended up costing John his life. In this portrait of a minister, as I have said, yes, a minister must be one who risks for the Lord. That is a part of his calling. There is much uncertainty in the call to ministry. But then it also goes on beyond risk that one is willing to take, as even an individual Christian, every pass. It isn't simply to John who must risk. It isn't simply to the ministers who follow after who must risk. But it is a mark belonging to the people of God. For if we were to look through the New Testament, we'd find very little people who were belonging to Christ through faith and risked nothing. We'd be hard-pressed to search the text from cover to cover to find a people who belonged to Christ and never risked. Somehow, at our point in time in history, we find risk or difficulty to be a surprise. But if we were to search through the text of Scripture, it would not be a surprise at all. Let me ask you then in this thought, if my argument could stand, that you'd be hard-pressed to find one person who laid hold of Christ through faith by grace and never experienced difficulty through risk, through the call and cost of discipleship, then let me ask you this as a believer. What is God presently asking you to risk in the call for faithfulness? 
I would push forth my stance that it might be large and it might be very minor. But it stings nonetheless. And I know that it is felt. There is a constant call and cost to our discipleship. What is it that the Lord is asking you to risk? Whether it be small and nagging or whether it be large and feeling overwhelming. What is the Lord asking you to risk in the call to faithfulness? Let me run down simply a relationship. The thought of relationships. Is the Lord asking you to speak the truth of the gospel into a relationship of which you prize that could suffer the risk of losing the entire relationship altogether? Is the gospel an inconvenience to your relationship? Consider John's ministry. Think of money. Of course, another one that Scripture seems to talk about money more than any other vice. The issue, to be faithful to his call and not get lost in personal ambition. James warns us of jealousy and ambition. And he says it brings forth every kind of evil. Covetousness, idolatry, adultery flow from selfish ambition. What is it that Christ is calling you as the Lord of the covenant to risk in the category of financial pleasure and personal ambition in order that you might be found instead faithful to him? Third, career. Many of us in transition through careers and so forth and moving forward and, and thinking of new applications out there and how we're going to pursue after graduate school and where we're going to go. Are you considering making your career choice or your career shift based on your call to be faithful to your family and your church, even at great cost of your career? Will you be faithful to your children? Will you be faithful as God's people to the church? even if it is a call to risk your career advancement. What is it that God is asking you this morning to risk in the call of faithfulness? Not only as we move forward, not only is John a faithful minister of the word of the covenant, but he is a faithful minister of the sign of the covenant. What do I mean by sign? Again, as I gave you a definition just earlier, so the minister is he who administrates or serves on behalf of another. The content of his administration is not himself or his own, but it is the word of the Lord that he administers and that he speaks forth, both its sanctions for disobedience and its blessings that attend obedience. And he also administers, along with the content of that word, the sign that visible act that points beyond itself to an invisible reality. John here is faithful to the sign of the covenant as well. What is the sign? Look at verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. You see, this is the distinction. No, you could be Jesus himself. You could be the Messiah. You could be the Lord's anointed. We're questioning in our hearts through your populist message that is resonate within. You might be the Christ. No, 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 no. I baptize you with water. What is the distinction that John is making clear here? In the baptism of water. But the one who is mightier than I is coming. 
I'm not him, but the one that you're considering, you're thinking, you're expecting in your minds and your hearts through the word of the Lord, the Christ, he's mightier than I. I couldn't even carry his shoes. And arguing from lesser to greater is baptism yet again. I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. John is a faithful minister of the sign of the covenant. What I mean by that is when John says, I baptize with water, he is making clear that water is the chosen sign. It's water. It's a sign. This is all I do as a minister. I'm not the Lord of the covenant. I'm a minister. I, I can only provide what He prescribes. I baptize with water. This is the water is the chosen sign of the washing away of the pollution of the soul. It's a sign. That is all I can provide. As a minister of this church, this is all that Pastor Dan and I can provide. Signs of the Lord's work. Signs of the washing away of the pollution of the soul. Let me give a little example to help clarify the issue of sign as a visible act that points beyond itself to an invisible reality. Consider for a moment the literally an exit sign. If there was a fire in here and we all took off running and we see a sign, well, you you see a huge door with lots of natural light coming in. Pretend you're unfamiliar with this space. You're running and you want out of here and you see a sign on the wall that says exit. Let's say you just run as hard as you can into that exit sign. You quickly realize this is not the exit. Right? It's a sign. It points to or directs one toward the actual exit. And and so you have something that says exit, but you cannot exit by it. The thing signified by the exit sign is the actual threshold that takes you to freedom. So you have a sign, exit here, run through the threshold. That is the thing signified. That is sign and thing signified. This is what baptism is. That's what John is making the careful distinction. I'm a minister. I'm not the Christ I'm not the Lord of the covenant. I'm a minister of it. I simply can provide what he prescribes. I give you water as the chosen sign of the washing away of the pollution of the soul. But I cannot wash away the pollution of your soul. John's baptism signifies the washing away but it doesn't do the work of washing away 
rather as a sign, as we consider the sign on the wall, if we ran through in expectation of that sign for great oxygen and deliverance, we would smash the wall, land back on our backs, and perhaps die of smoke inhalation. Do you see the danger in trusting in a sign as though it itself contains the thing signified? If Roman Catholicism could think through this issue of sign and things signified. For the washing of water is only that, a sign that points beyond itself to something that is greater and indeed an invisible reality, it itself cannot save. And John makes clear here that if you desire the thing that is signed in the water, if you desire the oxygen in the room, you want to actually run through, not a stop, uh, an exit sign and smash into a wall of drywall and die of smoke inhalation, but you want deliverance. You want the thing signified. You want true washing of the pollution of your soul. Then you must look to he who is mightier than I. For only he can perform it. For only he is the Lord of the covenant. I am simply a minister. You see, this is the role of ministers here at Redeemer. This is the role of ministers in Christ's church. That they are to faithfully preach both words of Scripture. We call those two words of Scripture each and every Lord's Day, law and gospel. This is the mark of a faithful minister. You see it in verse 18 with many exhortations. And he took down the evil that was present in Herod's administration and in all the populace. And yet he also, verse 18, with those exhortations, with those reproofs, he preached the good news. That is, law and its remedies. And with that word, the one says, I love that word. He provides also the sign and seal that attends to that covenantal word, the waters of baptism. Let me just give you one last word before we move to the faithfulness of the Lord of the covenant, and that is to encourage you and to warn you both that there is not a single pastor or minister anywhere who can provide your soul with the thing signified. Minister is not to receive your faith, but your faith is to rest solely in Christ, the Lord of the covenant, not a minister, not his capabilities, not his personality or lack thereof. But your assurances lie not in your minister, but they lie in the Lord of the covenant whom he is to point you to whom you are to rest in, for only he can provide the thing signified. A minister can only do that, yet critically so. He can only point and direct. No minister can provide your soul with forgiveness of sins. No priest or church magisterium can truly forgive your sins. Rather, week in and week out, if they are faithful, they will point you to the one who can, who we would name so clearly in this text, the Lord Jesus Christ alone who can provide the forgiveness that the pollution of your soul 
absolute needs. So let's turn to him, the faithful Lord of the covenant here, just for a couple of moments. We consider John as a faithful minister of the covenant, and in great contrast from his simple water, but significant, but simple water baptism, that is a sign we then turn to the Lord, who alone can provide not just another sign in a series of signs and seals, but the thing signified in the water. Consider the faithful Lord of the covenant. Look at verse 16 as we see the distinction between sign and things signified. John answered them all saying, and he gets right at the heart of sign and things signified, the contrast therein. As a minister, he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier, this is critical, I, I am not he, He who is mightier, and and you'll attach his being mighty to his great redemptive works. He is mightier than I. I couldn't even carry his shoes. And the mark of his might, that is, that which belongs to him alone, is baptism, not yet again with water, but with the Spirit and with fire. This is he who is mightier, the Lord of the covenant. The first mark of the Lord of the covenant, not yet another minister who stands in line of many ministers who serve him, but he who is the Lord of the covenant above all. He, number one, baptizes with spirit. You see, what we mean by baptism with spirit is that Jesus As the Lord of the covenant, who is mightier than John, can actually provide your soul the forgiveness it needs. He, as the Lord of the covenant, will not point you to faith, but he can give faith to believe. He will not speak of regeneration alone, but he can actually cause regeneration in the soul through the hearing of the gospel. The Lord of the covenant can minister the thing signified in the sign. So as water does wash over a candidate of baptism, as that water so surely is a picture of washing the dirt away from the skin, is a picture of washing pollution from the soul, so surely can it actually be true through the provision of the Lord of the covenant. That your soul, by receiving Him and resting solely upon Him apart from your contributions of works, repenting of your sin and resting solely upon the Lord Jesus Christ for His grace and merit, so surely can he provide the forgiveness that is required, produce the faith that one might rest back into him and cause you to move from death to life. Jesus is mightier than John and seen in his baptism of the Spirit. John baptizes with water, which is a sign. Jesus baptizes with Spirit, which is the substance This is the great distinction between John and Jesus. One can administer signs, but only the Lord can administer the substance. 
Secondly, the Lord of the covenant baptizes with the Spirit, which is the greater and the mightier work that John simply cannot perform. John is a minister, and no pastor can perform it, but only Jesus can actually provide forgiveness, produce the faith, and cause regeneration of the soul. Not only can he baptize with the Spirit, but as the Lord of the covenant, he also baptizes with fire. Now, perhaps that's the only reason you came here this morning, was to hear the portion of baptism with fire. Many have wondered about what that does mean. Um, What do we mean by baptism with fire? And depending on where you go and and the library that you use, you can find many uh, definitions and many working concepts of what it means that Jesus would baptize with fire. Some roll it back right into kind of... uh, 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 um, uh, further expanded statement beyond the Spirit. So you'd say something along the lines, He will baptize you with Spirit. Um, uh, I forget exactly the language they use. It's not mine, so I forget exactly how they get there. Um, but it's something about the Spirit uh, along with fire, or, and, then, and then something along those lines, and then, and then Spirit and fire are kind of one completed work. As I said, I don't take that position here myself, and, 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 and there's multiple positions out there that you can kind of work through and think through, as I would put it forward to you that I do think is expressed here in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospels elsewhere by our Lord Himself, gives definition, I think, which is the best way to look at it. Of course, I would say it's the best way, but um, it's my opportunity to say that. So, the Lord of the Covenant um, is He who can baptize with Spirit, and He alone can also baptize with fire. I put forward for your kind of thinking through as we consider the baptism with fire that it's not so tricky. If we think of it quite simple, if I were to ask you, what does fire represent oftentimes in Scripture? You don't have to give an answer, but I already know all of you have the perfect answer. I know it's the same one I share. If we think of fire in Scripture, it is a portrait of judgment. I think it's safe to say whether we're in the Old Covenant, that is your Old Testament text of Scripture, or you're in your New Testament, or you're in the Apocalypse that is contained in the New Testament, you're finding fire, and then you'll see it throughout the discourses of Jesus as well. As he preaches to the crowds and calls them to further repentance, he speaks of an unquenchable fire. Or we look at judgment upon idols and so on and so forth. In the Old Covenant, we see fire. Consistently, as we handle fire throughout the text of Scripture, we're going to find a picture or a portrait of judgment. So it would be good for us to start there in our handling of the text of thinking what it means that he would baptize with fire. There must be some attachment to the concept of judgment. There's a baptism of judgment. It's somehow connected to his work and his work alone. John is saying, I can't baptize you with fire. So that's of interest as well. More so, he can. And baptism by fire is a baptism of judgment. So where do we go from here if we move the picture of fire into the idea of judgment, that there is a baptism that is coming, and there is a baptism marked by judgment or an ordeal of fire? Look with me quickly, and this is my last point for us this morning. Look over to Luke 12, if you would. And I want to start there just simply. I only have two references to consider for your purposes um, and, and that is to consider Luke's gospel first, which would be, you know, how is Luke handling fire? 
that we might roll it into the proper picture consistently with Luke's gospel itself, and that is Luke 12, 49 and 50. If you're there in 49 and 50 of Luke's gospel, this will help give clarity to what we learn in this prophetic utterance by John the Baptist as a faithful minister of the Word to point others to Christ and the greater work that Christ alone as Lord of the Covenant can perform, the work of the Spirit of regeneration and the baptismal event of fire. What is this event? Verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. What does that mean that, that you, you would? It, would? it was already moving. You wish it was already here, that it would already kindled. We'll keep reading verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you see the fire ordeal starting to be made clear? There's a baptism of fire with which our Lord speaks. He himself will be baptized with. And he is anxious in great distress awaiting its accomplishment. Look over to Mark 10, and this is my last text with you as I think of the, now that we're bridging the gap of fire and judgment meeting in our Lord at some point in his life he is to experience a baptismal ordeal. Mark 10, and he speaks of his baptismal ordeal as one of anxiety and difficulty, and yet he also speaks of it, doesn't he, so clearly in verse 50 as one of accomplishment. Look at Mark 10 then in verse 35 through 39, and this will be our last text as I mentioned. Mark 10, 35 through 39. You remember this episode, I'm sure. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. In your glory. Now, if we, we can all kind of take a deep breath and stand back up. Were you not floored with that statement? <laughs> you think, wow, we can really be awful. Verse 38, our Lord's response. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are. And he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I baptized, you will be baptized. We get clarity a little bit in verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, if we put all three concepts together of what our Lord lays out so clearly, if fire is indeed an ordeal of judgment, And the Lord alone is the one who can baptize with such a judgment ordeal. He speaks of himself undergoing a fire judgment, which is a baptism 
of which he must be baptized. And he speaks to his disciples, even in their not understanding what he's saying. He speaks to them, you will be baptized with my baptism. You will drink the cup that I myself will drink. How does he say all of this about a fire baptism? You see, Jesus himself, as the Lord of the covenant, will perform the works of the servant of the covenant, undergoing an overwhelming immersion of judgment by fire. And that ordeal, which Christ himself will undergo, will bridge the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God. This is how he then speaks to his disciples. With my cup, you also will share. And with my baptism, you will be baptized. This is further advanced in our final moment in verse 17, that the cross of Christ is that ordeal of fire. Verse 17, back in our passage, look at the result of the work of the Spirit and the work of the fire in baptism. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. And the result of this fire baptism, this judgment ordeal that the Lord himself will undergo, I have a baptism with which I must be baptized. Would produce a winnowing fork to gather wheat into his barn and to burn the shaft with yet again unquenchable fire. In the concluding comment of our text this morning, what John is proclaiming about our Lord is that our Lord, as the Lord of the covenant, can produce the thing signified. He can make one his wheat. And one becomes the wheat and the threshing floor, one who will not be burned with an unquenchable fire, one who will not face judgment. He will be indeed the Lord's wheat are those who repent this very hour, this morning, and receive Jesus, the Lord of the covenant, as their Savior. If you are to do this, you pass through the judgment ordeal in Him. not to be baptized in judgment alone. Not to undergo the wrath of God alone, but to be found in Christ who underwent that baptismal font on your behalf. Thus, you are referred to in this dividing moment, this winnowing fork event, you are defined as the wheat of the Lord. You're his possession. Those who look upon this event, those who hear the message of the Lord through the content of his ministry as he continues, we go for several chapters. Those who reject it, those who also look to him and spurn his word, 
They find in the cross, not salvation, but they find in their indifference. They will be the shaft who will not be hidden in him and his fire ordeal, but they will undergo judgment individually and directly as those who've spurned his baptism for them in the work of the cross. At the end of our text, as we face the Lord of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, there are only two responses. It is a response of reception to the content of the covenant, the good news that is preached. And there is chaff that will be burned and face judgment for rejection of that very same content. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would enable the preaching of your word to go forward in such a manner as to create light in the place of darkness. That you would give one in the hearing of the word, you'd give faith. One would take that faith and they would place that directly upon the Lord of the covenant, not upon a minister, not upon church membership, not upon morality, and not upon self-work. Lord, they place their faith directly and squarely upon the Lord of the covenant, who is Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Son of God. I pray that you would call many out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Thank you for your ordeal of judgment and baptism on our behalf, our Lord. Let us live lives full of gratitude, being risk-filled, faithful people unto you and your cause, not our own. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Invite the